Every health system leader has executive management challenges facing their organization. This show supports leaders in addressing those challenges with cutting-edge information, leading strategies, and sharing best practices. Listen in and gain keen insight as industry leaders share their stories. The Baldridge Foundation welcomes you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Hello and welcome to Leader Dialogue. I'm Dr. Roger Spullman and I'm your host for today's discussion and I'm so glad you've tuned in to listen to another fascinating conversation with another really senior experienced uh, leader in healthcare. And it's going to be a little bit different because we're going to have a roundtable discussion that's sort of a uh, follow-up to a roundtable discussion that Ben Ben Sawyer and Dr. Chuck Peck and I had with a group of leaders last week, and it was a great time. It was a very intimate gathering and a time for us to sort of behind closed doors. We, you know, we were uh, we agreed that we weren't going to share a lot of this necessarily, so people could say whatever they want and share their feelings. But it was it was great. It was a great time, and we got to talk with some um, incredible leaders. And we have one of those leaders with us today, Dr. Scott Nygaard. And uh, Scott is a good friend to all of us on the call. And we have been able to work together in the past. And just delighted that, uh, Scott, that you could join us today. So thank you very much. Yep, Roger, Ben, Chuck, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'll give a little bit more detailed uh, background, uh, which is, it's quite remarkable and and very uh you know, very accomplished uh, physician and physician leader. But Ben, um, About Healthcare is our sponsor, and we are brought to people by, that's your employer, but but we are brought to uh, this audience by the Baldridge Foundation. They really allowed us to do leader dialogue. And we wanted to to stop and take a couple of minutes to talk about the Baldridge Foundation, because I don't know that all of our audience knows exactly what the Baldridge is all about. And it really truly is more than just winning an award. And perhaps uh, Dr. Nygaard will talk about their Baldridge journey. Um, you know, but, but Ben, tell us what really is important to the Baldridge Foundation with regard to healthcare leadership. Yeah, so the roots of the Baldridge were to be able to clarify uh, exceptional performance. It was originated by uh, President Reagan uh, Malcolm Baldridge was his Secretary of Commerce, and as you know, Reagan was very interested in American exceptionalism, but you couldn't just talk about it. You had to have a reference. So for the for the four years that Malcolm Baldridge worked with him, uh, he worked on preparing the Baldridge framework, which is now housed within the National Institute of Standards and Technology. What Baldridge has created is a truly uh, transparent performance excellence environment. So I had the opportunity to participate in their national quest for excellence conference in the Washington DC area this year. It was last, it was just last week. And I was struck again, um, with the incredible exchange of information and openness. There were 14 winners this year because they were unable to hold the event during COVID. And it was remarkable to see the transparency, the amount of, of interactions, the, the shared learnings around leadership and strategy and workforce. I just, you, you just never see that in almost any other environment because people are typically concerned about intellectual property and, you know, not giving away the, the, you know, the special sauce or whatever. 
But in the Baldridge, it's all about curiosity. It's all about transparency. It's all about leaders being servant leaders and making sure that the organizations can be successful. And every one of those leaders on the stage said, look, it's not being the recipient of the, nat the, the National Baldridge Quality Award. It's actually the journey. And, and there were several that were multiple uh, winners. There were some that were, had, been, had won three times. There were some that had won twice on the stage. It was remarkable. Well, and, and I love the fact that one of the requirements for winners is that you must share, as you said, your secret saucer. And it's not so secret. It's a pretty formulaic, and, but you have to stick to it. And, uh, and so maybe we'll get a little bit of insight from, from Scott. Let me, let me introduce Dr. Nygaard, and, um, first of all. And, and Scott is the COO of one of the most, one of the most premier health systems in America. It's, a, it's an interesting organization because Lee Health in uh, Central Florida, in Fort Myers and that whole region, right? I mean, uh, it's a public, it's still public, uh, a public health system. And you have a governing board, right, of, uh, is it a dozen people, 10? Yeah, we have 10, 10 publicly elected board members. Yeah, yeah. And so you CEOs out there thinking about your own board or people, you know, having to interact <laughs> with them, think about that. Thinking, you know, it's hard enough when you select them, but what about the public voting for people? Um, you know, so you, you've gotten um, great success and and by the way you have that those 10 publicly elected uh, board members and no direct tax support correct. so that's so correct roger you get you get the oversight without the benefit <laughs> <laughs> but uh but let's talk about let's talk about um about scott a minnesota native um and uh midwest guy uh, for most of his career, and he's a pulmonary critical care specialist consultant, and uh, which is a great specialty for to having coming to having insight to come through COVID. Um, I'm I'm sure that you get pushed back into your clinical role oftentimes, and we'd love to hear about that. But but Lee Health is uh, is the dominant pr provider in his area. It's a safety net hospital. But you've been responsible. You've been there 12 years already, and it's a, it's just remarkable to see how that system has grown. And there's no doubt in my mind that you've been a critical player in helping um, sort of direct and strategize that growth, Scott. Um, one of my favorite healthcare leaders. It's just fun to have watched your career. Uh, but it, what's really nice, and, and I think the number is correct, don't you have about 750 in your multi-specialty um, provider network. Of, yeah, of we're approaching almost a thousand clinicians. Oh my goodness! Five hundred physicians and about four hundred advanced providers. Ninety yeah. locations across Lee County in Southwest Florida, and then some presence in Charlotte and Collier County near us. Wow! Wow! Well, and again, just ticking off the the areas that you've been responsible for everything, you know, rehab services, supply chain, HR, patient safety, quality, ambulatory services. So, you know, you've you've really done it all and uh, just the perfect guy to be uh, leading from an operations perspective that that organization. So, again, we're just delighted to know you and be friends, but really happy to have the insight that you provide and bring to what's going on. And we do have a lot of questions. So. 
Thank you. Uh, thank you, Scott. Um, you, and you look great. Our audience can't see. I wish they did. You don't, you don't look exhausted, but you probably should be. So, um, you know, in our conversation last week in this round tape, table, we talked about um, COVID is the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? And, uh, and, and yes. there have been plenty of negative things that have come from it. But we also talked about what are some of the positive things. And so I'd like to kick us off talking about, you know, and, and, uh, and Chuck, you have a unique relationship with a lot of health systems. And so we're look, looking for your insights as well. But what are some of the things maybe, Scott, that Lee Health found um, after you kind of your head stops spinning and you see what's <laughs> going on? You know, what are some of the things that have changed forever in, in uh, healthcare because of COVID? And maybe some yeah. Uh, good question, Roger, in terms of what has uh, changed in healthcare and what have we learned. I think one of the learnings, I hope for the world, really, not just for Lee Health, is that, uh, you know, we should have foreseen that we were going to have another pandemic. We've had several across the world in the past. And unfortunately, due to some of the methodologies, which were more focused around cost reduction, just-in-time inventory and things, um, you know, the supply chain issues became manifest in a totally different way. We weren't prepared at the magnitude and need for, uh, you know, in this case, in particular, personal protective equipment. Um, our people never went without, so we had a very industrious supply chain. And uh, But we had a lot of travelers coming in who testified that in many other places, people were simply going without adequate personal protection. Um, and that's unfortunate for anybody who's at the front lines and serving in healthcare in terms of you know, trying to do their best. If they don't feel safe and well cared for, it's hard to provide, you know, a safe uh, environment for the patients that they're trying to serve. So I think that was uh, one learning early on from the, the pandemic and one that we have thought about and said, we now have to be prepared for the next pandemic. And so it created opportunity for us to aggregate supplies uh, to be available with, you know, a six-month inventory, something we're going to have to turn on a regular basis so it doesn't obsolesce. But, you know, we can't count on everybody else to be prepared. So we're going to have mm -hmm. to become prepared for our region um, since, you know, people count on us to provide that service. Uh, I think the other thing uh, during the pandemic was, I said, uh, the, the hospital became kind of the center of the universe again. I think we were moving to more ambulatory care. I think we'll return to that, by the way, as time goes on. But I think the focus on acute care, somebody who people expect doors to be open 24-7, 365, came to the forefront. Uh, do we have enough ventilators? Do we have enough ICUs? Do we have enough oxygen? Do we have enough personal protective equipment? Do we have the right drugs and treatments? Do we have enough doctors? All of that kind of manifests itself in magnitude. Um, but like I said, as things return back to normal, I think more and more people will want to return to the outpatient setting. So how do we, you know, continue to focus on the long-term needs of healthcare and not just the short-term impacts of uh, COVID? And then I think the third and last thing I think that I'm still concerned about is the emerging and continued, uh, you know, mental health and well-being of our workforce. Um, globally, but manifest particularly in healthcare. I know we've had any number of physicians and nurses who exited the profession just uh, before I came here. I was actually uh, talking to one of our physicians who's decided to make a career change based on the burden and stress and just 
uh, you know, recognize some things and maybe reprioritize, not all bad, but the importance of family, for example, and a different work-life balance that would, you know, allow them to spend more time on the things that really became important. Uh, I think as we have workers return who went out and became travelers, interfacing with people who feel they were abandoned in COVID by their coworkers is a real point of uh, potential conflict and something we need to proactively manage. And just the last thing is I still think there's a lot of unprocessed grief out there um, yeah. that people, uh, it'll manifest in different ways. A lot of it will be behavioral. Um, yeah. And just, uh, like I said, maybe ongoing resignation from the workforce. In Florida, we had a task force that said one in four nurses is at risk to leave the profession, which is significant, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I think some of these, um, some of the nurses, you know, I know anecdotally just by talking to my friends in the profession, <clears throat> you know, with CARES Act money coming in, yeah. you know, we, we began to throw money. Systems began to throw money at the problem. And it's, um, and you get people's expectations up, you know, wait a second, you're paying me this much, you know, for working in a super high risk in, environment. And I stayed, I did it. And now you want to cut my pay now, you know, and so you've got all that stuff filtering yeah. through and, you know, and, and our profession, this profession really attracts good hearted, um, sincere people who are caring and want their helpers, it retracts helpers. And, yeah. but, but even helpers, I'm sure you've seen, even helpers have their limits and they get exhausted. Yeah, I think as we went out and did rounds on some of our people, one of the things you're reminding me I had to tell people is, uh, you know, despite all being short staffed and the burden, not having families present to be communicators and help share some of the burden and communication, which changed the dynamic, you know, being the, intermediary of communication with devices, be it FaceTime or other mechanisms of connecting family, the entire workflow changed and people would feel guilty about the fact that they were not able to provide the same level of care as pre-pandemic. Um, so that, you know, kind of empathy, compassion, you know, fatigue is the word that's been used in the industry became manifest. And I would have to just tell them, you know, we're in a crisis, folks. We have to prioritize our work. We have to decide what's most critical. And at least in our system, I felt like, you know, our staff did a great job of prioritizing what was most important. Unfortunately, not everybody got a bath every day or, you know, had their linen changed every single day unless it was necessary. But some of those things, you know, could wait and they were not the top priority. But the guilt of the healthcare worker just struggling to think I'm not doing my job the way I want to do my job um, was was manifest uh, significantly. I had a lot of people who would just kind of break down in tears feeling that, you know, mm -hmm. they were not giving the patients what they deserved or needed. Yeah. I, you know, and I've even heard people say, um, you know, very snarky and very, I don't know, very negative comments because they can't come into the hospital. They can't see their loved ones and saying, concluding wrongly that, oh, they've never wanted us there anyway. Now they got what they want, what they wanted. They don't want us as to be, you know, family members interfering with their care. I said, no, 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 no. You have that all wrong. You know, yeah. it's, it's a help. You know, of course, every once in a while, there's a difficult Chuck smiling, you know, you, you've, you know, in your practice, you've seen a few difficult 
patient family members, I'm sure, and you have to deal yeah. with it. But in the, for the most part, family members, having them there is a big plus. It's it's a help, right? Yeah. And I think the, the you know, behaviors that come out are mostly out of fear and confusion and fear of loss and, you know, just not, you know, feeling vulnerable, literally in healthcare, you're in a foreign land, foreign language. It's difficult to navigate on a good day. And then the unknowns of this pandemic, so many unknowns where we, you know, have been continuing to learn and will continue to learn for the foreseeable future about um, the pandemic. I do have to say one thing, our community was incredibly gracious. The amount of generosity, be it, you know, hands-on masks, food brought to our people or, you know, uh, sheriffs and police department kind of putting on light displays in our parking lots to yeah. encourage our staff. It was uh, a rallying cry for the community really to come together. And, and I know our staff truly appreciated that. That's cool. So Scott, you probably, this is Chuck, you probably, yeah. well, not probably I'm sure you have a, you have a, a strategy that you, that you have in your head and is getting laid out post COVID. I'm sure that you had a, a vision and a strategy in mind 12 years ago on how you were going to get the the system to where you've gotten it to already to, uh, today after 12 years. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, with everything that you just described, et cetera, how do you actually get your team members to um, to actualize the strategy? In other words, you know, they, they, they are overwhelmed. They've got it. They have had a million things on their plate. Um, they're understaffed. Uh, they want to do the right thing, not, you know, for the system, for the doctors, for the patients, for their coworkers, et cetera. How do you actually get them to act day to day on, on, on getting the strategy to move forward? Well, that's a great question, Chuck. And uh, I appreciate you asking. We had a, in the middle of the pandemic, a heart to heart conversation with our leaders. Everybody was caught up in the activity trap and, you know, we had to start planning for the next year. And one of the conversations I said is, well, we actually have to set aside time despite all going around us to have time as a senior group for strategic planning. And people are like, oh, Scott, we can do that later. We don't have to do that now. And my response was, that's the duty of leadership. We don't provide for the future direction, thought leadership and stay focused. Yes, we have a crisis. Yes, we need to do all those things, but we cannot forego what is going to be required of us in the future. Things may change in terms of pace or the what or the how, but we still owe it to the organization to provide a long-term direction and you know, to communicate regularly about both the short-term and the long-term need to stay focused. I think a simple example of that for staff, by the way, because if you look at the literature now, there was a lot of erosion of quality outcomes and hacks and stuff. Our, our team actually sustained their performance throughout then remained four and five star performance across all of our various areas, um, which I thought was pretty amazing and says something to the focus and the prioritization of the work at hand, both short and long term. Um, you know, we had a lot of discipline. We, we were upside down financially at one point, $100 million and, uh, you know, ended up Yes, through some of the funding and CARES mechanism, but our people really rallied to try to help, you know, the organization stand focused from a financial perspective, despite all these challenges of rising costs of labor and supplies and whatnot. Um, that plan, you know, we're just refreshing it again this year. So I think, uh, you know, we've stayed on the course we set. We did have to, you know, um, 
kind of become more focused, which isn't a bad thing. I think we took a few things off the list that weren't necessarily priorities and didn't seem to make sense going forward. Maybe they were services somebody else in our community could already do or was doing. Why compete with that? Uh, we created a few joint venture partnerships, like with a rehab hospital that was already coming to town and said, you know, let's not compete. We have a rehab hospital we're trying to relocate anyway. We could give a better footprint of service by partnering with somebody. So it's been difficult. Um, you know, we had to offer services like many in the telehealth space. Those have ebbed and flowed. We gave them away for free for a while, just in service to the community, really to create better access. We didn't want financial to be a barrier to access, despite all the challenges we had. Um, and I think it served its purpose, uh, trying to find the sweet spot going forward. We'll have to figure that out as the reality of payment and whatnot comes back for that service. But um, it's a pretty price sensitive, I tell you that, in terms of the use of it um, and whether so or not could, it's going to be reimbursed. If I could summarize what I'm hearing, which I, you know, it's, it's, it's rare to hear this in action, but it sounds like the, the vision and mission of the organization is not just a piece of paper uh, in a frame on the wall somewhere. It sounds like it's it's lived by the organization. So when you say that um, you did all these things uh, for the community because you feel like that's you know your role and your responsibility, um, it sounds like that's part of the fabric of the organization. It's not just something that somebody looks at uh, every couple of years. Yeah, I think we've worked over the last few years really hard on mission, vision, values, and trying to articulate those in a way that makes sense to our staff. We had engaged our staff in building something we call the Lee Health Promise, which is really a, a way or a set of words they could relate to and own. Um, I do think that got, by the way, a little bit lost in this. We're just talking about refreshing that you know commitment to our promise because... Uh, like I said, there's been a lot of changes over time and a lot of weathering, but um, we will refresh that at this point. So that's one area of opportunity for us to kind of bring back to the forefront. But yes, I think our mission, vision, values served as well. Scott, have have your providers, you know, you talked about talking to providers about their frustration and thinking about leaving, you know, are there some things that have helped them like telehealth visits? I mean, is that something that I know for, in my own experience, I tried pre-COVID to get a group groups of physicians interested in that, and it took a pandemic to get them to see that that could be a positive thing. You know, where are all our patients? How quickly can we get this televisit thing going? But has that long-term, do you think people will continue accessing the system that way? I, I think the different mechanisms of providing care have allowed physicians to reach out and service to more people. I think the risk of that, you know, if there's a risk to it, it's, you know, now I have even more points of contact. Does it lead to burnout? Long term? <laughs> I don't know that, by the way, it's a to be determined chapter. I will tell you one thing that did go on in our organization that I think physicians took advantage of was we had uh, what we called a rest team who went around and visited with staff and physicians and, you know, created dialogue on the various units and, uh, you know, did various aspects of reflection or meditation or prayer, whatever people wanted. Uh, most recently, they started a tea cart service. And it's interesting how many people really are taking them up on the opportunity, you know, for fellowship and interaction. I think the most common thing I hear post pandemic is it's so good 
to see people in the endemic phase and actually see them and not just know them by their eyeballs, for example, to actually see a smiling face or even a sad face where I could provide more comfort, care, and kind of engage with the human being again. So I know that's a learning for both our physicians and for our staff. I don't know what your exact numbers are, but I'm guessing that, you know, the, you know, your revenue mix, like most systems is um, pretty heavily weighted to outpatient. And certainly, you know, net revenues is it's more profitable to care for your outpatients. But how, how are you experiencing your, the patient flow? Has it come back? Great question, Roger. How's patient flow? It's broken still, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And broken not because you know people don't understand the opportunity, but just like we've had labor supply issues, so does the whole community. So whether it's home health agencies or long-term acute care hospitals or whether it's skilled nursing facilities, they simply have had trouble getting staff. And again, like I said, who should take on all that burden? The hospital, right? 24-7, 365. So we have had our length of stay go up a full day. Um, We've had excess days and excess, you know, up 30,000 plus days during the pandemic. Um, You know, we're not receiving, despite all the, you know, thoughts out there that we're receiving, you know, revenue enhancements. It's not significant, you know, to offset the cost. We just went through an analysis the other day and noted that uh, if we were to improve our flow, we could reduce our cost by $33 million and still have the same revenue. Um, so we have to fix flow. It has to be addressed over some period of time. We are reaching out with our SNF community partners, with LPAX, with uh, hospice, and starting a bunch of workflows to try to address that problem, both short and long-term. And it should be addressed regardless of the pandemic. You know, It's just good business practice. So you're feeling pretty comfortable that um, I, that everyone's getting the message. How about your customer-facing communication? You know, how are you signaling to the community that it's safe to come back to the hospital? So good question. Again, from the very beginning of the pandemic, we chose to be totally transparent with our numbers, our number of admissions, our number of discharges, our deaths. Um, you know, the number of people on ventilators, the number of people in our ICUs, we, we were totally transparent with the community throughout. And so we built, I think, we'd had daily briefings, the news media was there every day. Um, you know, the TV stations were there every day. And I think that did a lot of good in terms of reducing anxiety and letting people know exactly where we stood. So there was confidence, you know, in our system and ability to handle it. And we were honest if we had, you know, delays or people in hallways or just were struggling to serve people. So I I think that was probably the best thing. And we've continued to be transparent as we're going through the next phase and getting things back on track. You know, I I think being the almost the sole provider, at least the major provider in your community puts on a lot of responsibility. It's, uh, you know, so you've had to really go deep into this and care for your community. And it's wonderful that they have responded and and given you the support and the understanding and the affirmation uh, that you need. So um, anything else? We've got about three minutes left, and I don't I don't know if Chuck or Ben, you have some burning questions you want to ask Chuck before we let him go. But you know, is there anything else that you can kind of share with our audience? What does the future look like? What's going to be different in the future? There are obviously things we're going back to things that we had to put on pause, 
and we're going to get back, as you said, get back to those things, the planning horizon and, and, and the strategy is so important, but what's, what's new, you know, what, what are you looking forward to over the next two years? Well, for us, I think it's still a focus on as the market moves towards value. Um, we are replacing a legacy hospital, which, you know, nobody's investing in hospitals except for health systems these days. We've scaled it back based on use rates and projection, but we may have more competition. So my caution to our system is do not overbuild the high cost fixed asset model of healthcare. It's the one thing that could get us into trouble. Um, and perhaps we should even let somebody take a few of those beds and patients for beds and focus on the ambulatory growth and the access. We have been um, rigorous about outpatient growth. When I got here, the system's revenue was about 15% on the outpatient side. Today, we're a little over 50%, so we've grown significantly there. Um, and, you know, we understand that we provide service to the entire community, including an emergency room and hospital, but we're so much more than that as a system of care and trying to articulate that value to our community, I think is the next challenge um, and really engaging, you know, our patients or, you know, community members and trying to help them understand all that Lee does to keep our community functioning and strong. Well, congratulations, Hi. Scott. You have done an awesome job and we're proud of you and great to know you, great to count you as a colleague. And, uh, and again, I, I thank you for the work that you're doing. This has not been a fun period of time and, and uh, you've stayed steady in your leadership and your team. And I know you believe in them and, you've, and you are one who's committed. We didn't talk too much about Baldridge, but your leadership is long and effective and and I know that you invest in your teams in education. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me today. Oh, it's been our pleasure. So yeah. on behalf of Ben and Chuck, we are grateful to you, our dear friend, Scott, and we wish you all the best. And we thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. And we look forward to having more conversations like this in the future. 